electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the countdown to Q4, whether today's big rotation is a sign of things to come in the months ahead. We're tracking your money, debating the state of stocks with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Brendan DeVingello, Joe Terranova, and John Nigerian. He, of course, the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Also with us today, Anastasia Amoroso. She's chief investment strategist at iCapital Network. It's good to see everybody. We begin with a look at stocks. We enter the third quarter's final week. We're watching that big move in interest rates. There it is on the right-hand side of your screen. Broke out last week, pushed close to 150 today. We've settled back just a bit. But the result of that is a NASDAQ that's been under pressure. Tech continues to sell off. Financials, energy, and industrials catching a nice bid. But Shannon, I I come to you first. I think the story now of, of higher rates and lower tech is the biggest story in the market. And if we are in a period of higher moving rates, are we going to be in a period of lower moving tech? Well, we've certainly, it seems like we saw this story earlier in the year. And for, you know, folks who are long tech, such as myself and my team, uh, there are some concerns about the sharply rising 10-year and the potential for that and what that could do to tech stocks. And I think that there's also this backdrop of continued strong economic growth. And so if we're moving into an environment where economic growth is higher, rates are higher, that's not the backdrop where tech did really well in 2018 and 2019. But my caveat there is that with stronger economic growth, stronger enterprise spend, stronger consumer spend, many of these big tech companies, even at the valuations that they're trading at, can still deliver earnings. So I would be cautious over the course of the next six to eight weeks if we continue to see the strength of this rotation away from technology, away from long duration stocks. I still would think about it in terms of what is going to provide me with earnings growth in my portfolio over the next two to three years. I would contend that we're not going back to a period or going to a period where we're going to continue to see five and a half, six percent GDP growth. We're going to moderate. We're seeing it in the economic data. And so a cautionary tale that, you know, unloading a lot of your big tech exposure in this short term period where we certainly may see underperformance, I think is probably not the best decision if you're looking out over a longer term period of time. Joe, but it it does seem that we might be getting a re-rating for tech that may have already started. You look at month-to-date performance for especially the biggest names, whether it's Apple down 4.5% or Amazon down 3 and we're going to talk more specifically about that name in just a moment. Facebook has its own issues down 7.5%. Microsoft and Alphabet are also lower as well. If you continue to see the 10-year move higher in yield, I'm hard-pressed to think that tech is just going to settle in and rise right along with it. 
Well, the tenure is going to rise. What you're going to see is exactly what uh, was witnessed last week, Scott. The IWM, which is the Russell 2000 ETF, it took in $5.5 billion. It's a $70 billion overall ETF. That $5.5 billion, Scott, that's the largest increase since 2016. So uh, if, if you're going to see the velocity of the move that we had last week in yields, if you'll see the velocity of moves that we had earlier in the year, then absolutely you're going to see a lot of the uh, cyclical reopening sectors begin to be favored once again. And there's a lot of capital that could flow into that because money has been hiding out in mega cap technology, technology overall, and even healthcare. And I'll point healthcare out because healthcare has been a little bit of a defensive play over the last six weeks. Look at the sectors today. Healthcare is down 1.4%. That's the worst sector decline of all the 11 major sectors that we study. So uh, you're correct. We are basically right now, unfortunately, trading the direction of yields. Oh, but Shannon paints a picture, Joe, uh, almost like a Tom Lee, where, where you could have an everything rally. And the activity within the market and perhaps underneath the surface a little bit would suggest that maybe that's not the case that you're going to go right back to a, a scenario of higher rates equal lower tech and more money flowing into the epicenter, reopen value, cyclical, you know, economically sensitive stocks, however you want to characterize it. That happened before. It's going to happen so again. I, it's, this is either or. Either you're so, going to get an everything rally. You can do that. Or it's just going to be back selective again and you're going to get rotations. So, so here's, what I th here's what I think on that. I don't think you're going to get an everything rally. But I think you have to have the everything positioning. I think you want to avoid concentration because if you don't have an everything rally, what you're going to continue to have is rotation within the market in which one strategy or one sector is favored above all. So I'll just give you an example. I hold technology. I hold consumer discretionary, and then I hold financials at an overweight. So I'm kind of in both places. I'm going to let the market work for me, but I don't think uh, at any one given time everything is going to rally. I think it's a continual rotation in performance. Let's go to Steve Leisman, who has some breaking news regarding the Fed. We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment. Steve, what do you have? Scott, thanks very much. New York Fed President John Williams speaking to the Economic Club says that tapering may soon be warranted, assuming the economy continues to improve, picking up the line from the Federal Reserve statement and aligning himself with comments made by Fed Chair Jay Powell. He expects inflation 2% <clears throat> next year. He's moderating now even. Uh, and the recovery, he says, shows solid momentum, but a full recovery will take time. Growth, uh, you guys are going to be talking about that. Five and a half to six percent this year. Strong, fast in the first half, slower in the second half. Labor market recovery impaired by the COVID surge, he tells us, and is still a long way to go for maximum employment. So Scotty's one of the top guys there. He votes at these FOMC meetings. Uh, he's on board with a taper soon, assuming the economy continues to improve. The, Back to you. The other part of the equation is, you know, okay, taper soon. What happens if rates start to really take off to the upside, Steve? What is the impact going to be on the next move that the Fed may think it has to make and when? Um, you know, I think the Fed will see higher rates as, as exerting something of a break on the economy and in some cases sort of offsetting the need for the Fed to act, assuming that it's concerned about an inflation problem. I think a lot of it's going to tell, look, you have a, the economy – uh, should have higher rates given that it is normalizing. That Some of that process is going to be part of 
uh, just normalizing rates, normalizing the economy. There could be some inflation concern in there. The Fed's going to look closely, Scott, at why rates are rising. Is there a term premium aspect to it? Is there an inflation premium? Is there, is there a growth premium? premium? Yeah, I mean, and you would, as you say, you, you want them to rise. It would be proof that the economy is, in your words, normalizing or, or the Fed's word, whoever first used that. Steve, thank you very much. That's Steve Leisman with the news there. It sure, plays fine. Anastasia right into our conversation. I mean, if you're if you're entering a more normal economic period, rates are going to go up, which is just fine. But one stocks, one group of stocks is going to rise at the expense of another. Is that how you see it? Or do you subscribe to the fact that everything can go up? Scott, I think we are in the period of a rotation. And as you open up the show, I think that period of rotation can be sustained here for the next few months probably taking some of the profits out of the technology stock that have done so well and going into the energy and the reopening trades. I'll make one comment on the rate side of the equation. Rates are certainly up today, but I don't know that they're going to go that materially higher in the coming months. Because if you look at the fair value of rates, it's a function of how close are we to the first rate hike and just how buoyant the growth is and whether those revisions are going up. And I would say the growth is doing just fine, but we're not necessarily revising growth materially higher. I don't know that we will in the next few months. And also, we're not fast forwarding those rate hikes, you know, that much more. So I think we're somewhere around fair value on rates. But having said that, I think there's other headwinds that technology investors need to watch. It's maybe a little bit on the rate front, but also it's what else is going to happen with a three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation package. What does it mean in terms of corporate tax increases, increases on the foreign income? And then what does it mean for capital gains? Will some of the investors who have large embedded capital gains try to take some of those profits, especially because technology sector could be hit kind of from two sides of this, of this tax angle? So I think that's the reason to rotate a little bit out of the technology stocks. To everybody's point on the committee, it's not about selling them outright. It's just taking a little bit of those gains. But personally, I think some of the trades that outperform in the next few months are going to continue to be the ones that are doing so well today, which is being long energy and being long the travel and hospitality stocks. They've outperformed significantly since mid-August, and I think that continues. I just find it so interesting, Anastasia, that we're suggesting that, you know, rates aren't going to rise. Let's just say 2% is our line in the sand. They're not going to rise to 2% because the first rate hike is still in the in so far in the future that interest rates aren't going to reflect the fact that the Fed uh, is going to move anytime soon. Yet we're also suggesting that I just don't know why should rates be so much lower than 2% if you're in a more normalized world, regardless of when the first rate hike is going to be in, in, a, in a normal sense of times, we'd say, OK, rates are perfectly reasonable at 2%. You've got a more normalizing economy. Yes, the Fed is still in the game, so it's somewhat depressing what may be an even higher move in rates, given where we are and where we think we can go from a more normal economic period. Yeah, I think we're somewhere at the bottom of the range here, one and a half percent in a 10 year. We're probably going to see a move towards two percent, but I don't think it's going to be by the end of this year. I think that might be by the middle of next year. 
if you look at the race models, it's a function of how much does the Fed own? How much are they buying? And they're still going to be controlling 18% of the treasuries out there. So you're not going to have immediate pressure higher on, on rates because they're going to taper. And then a big factor is what are the economic forecasts and what are they going to do in the next few months? I will tell you, in the U.S., I'm not sure we're going to see materially higher growth revisions in the next few months. But the place to watch, and maybe that's what could move the rates higher here, is global growth. We're looking for a very strong growth rebound in Q4, especially in emerging markets, certainly in China and even ex-China. So, Scott, I think that could be one wild card that moves those rates higher. But then again, that benefits right back to the energy trade and the reopening trade, because that's what's not being priced in right now is the pickup in international activity well, it's in emerging show, markets. It's showing up today. You know, obviously, epicenter stocks are up, oil's up, financials are up. We're going to get to that in a second. Uh, what I found interesting, too, John Nigerian, uh, when was the last time Amazon got its price target cut? I mean, maybe it's more recent than I remember, but the price target gets cut today to 4100 from 43 at Morgan Stanley, and most of it is the cost of labor rising, they say. But nonetheless, it's noteworthy to me when we're having a conversation about the trajectory of big tech that Amazon, of all companies, gets its price target cut by a major firm. I don't remember the last time that happened or when it was last, but it sure doesn't seem like it was recent. No, it doesn't, Scott. And uh, it certainly seems like something that you'd expect to see, though, if you know that fuel inputs are going up like crazy, whether Amazon's flying their own fleet, uh, driving their own fleet, or whether they're dependent on somebody else. That's an input cost that they have to account for. And then there's the wage pressures that you've cited as well. And then there's the fact that uh, a lot of these goods uh, are not uh, even by a giant like Amazon. You're not able to acquire these goods as cheaply, Scott, when you just can't get them. I mean, you know, we're backed up. It's only nine days, I guess they say, in the port of Long Beach. But still, that is a backup that's causing uh, the, the folks that have these uh, demand pulls uh, to be able basically say, well, I'm going to hold my price as high as I can because I know that demand is there and there's just not the supply to meet it. Um, just quickly, Scott, about interest rates, and I'll be very quick. Uh, I think that uh, the 10% move we've seen from last uh, Thursday, you know, basically 136 to 150, 14 points, about a 10% move. Um, if it was a 10% move from two too higher, um, it would also be worrisome. So it's not just that interest rates are low and we've seen a big jump. It's the, again, velocity, how quickly we jumped and made that 10% move. I agree with the panel. I don't think we're just going to be off to the races with rates, but it is a reason to really focus in on financials. And the demand picture for energy is just hot, hot, but are hot. You, are you at all con concerned about the positions that you have in Amazon, for example? It, you have both stock and options. I've got stock, but I've got options written against the stock. In other words, calls that I've sold against the stock. And those calls are fatter premiums because of some of the performance of Amazon, just like Facebook. Um, the premiums are fatter right now, Scott. So you get a little bit more protection against it. Still think that Amazon Web Services and the other businesses that Amazon's in, other than what uh, you and I have been talking about so far, are going to continue to just be high demand and obviously they own pricing power like very few others. So, Brenda, UBS is out today and they're thinking about the same thing that we are and 
that we're talking about. They say rising yields shouldn't end the equity rally, but it could have an impact on relative sector performance. And I, I think we agree with that. Mike Wilson, by the way, says you want to stay defensive. This may be the time, he says, when markets are playing tricks on investors and even setting a bit of a trap. He's talking about why stocks rallied last week in the face of his own call for a 20 percent correction in stocks. I mean, I give him credit for holding his guns, keeping to his position there. Um, You want to take a position on either one of those suggestions, either from UBS that yields aren't going to end the equity rally or Mike Wilson, who says basically we're getting a fake out. Yeah, I'll make some comments that I think apply to both. One, I think we can't forget that we've just been in this period of time where economic growth has really been negatively impacted by the Delta variant. To the extent that that begins to lessen, and I think we are seeing some signs that that's beginning to lessen, I think that should absolutely be a good thing. Um, And could uh, that better economic growth could support stocks as we head into the second half of the year. And I also think uh, with regard to interest rates, I, I, you know, we saw the shift back into tech, no surprise, because I think we got a little bit of a growth scare. And so that's the kind of the safety trade. Uh, but I think it's important to have exposure to both tech and some of these cyclical reopening stocks, because when we look at where earnings growth is going to come from over the next year or two, tech is going to be as impressive as always. But I think many of those cyclical sectors have the potential to grow earnings exponentially from very depressed levels. Let, let, and it's, again, let's, let's be clear, too. Like, let's be clear. Mm-hmm. We, we know that probably most of our viewers do have exposure um, in technology. I mean, the, the largest of the tech stocks in general are, are among the most widely held anyway. So we get it. Um, but there's a difference, perhaps, in having exposure to having expectations. And, and that's really what I'm getting at here. I'm not suggesting, you know, mm-hmm. should you buy or sell tech? If you have tech, should you sell it because you think reopened stocks or ones that are more economically sensitive or cyclical are the ones that are going to do better? I'm saying where should our expectations be? For the, for the fourth quarter. Let's just call that what we're looking at. You've got the last few days of trading in Q3. We're looking ahead to the final three months of the year in, in Q4. Where, Brenda, should our expectations be? Should they be that if rates continue to rise, that tech is going to continue to sell off and that names that are going to continue to work are like a booking holdings, for example, which hits a new high today, which you happen to own, or a live nation, which hits a new high today with which Josh has talked about multiple times, including his final trade from last Friday, or an Expedia or any other of the travel-related names. Where should our expectations be? That's what this conversation is truly about. Yeah, I mean, I think the expectations should be more tempered for technology, honestly, even though many of them haven't done a whole lot over the last year. uh, They're really facing much tougher growth comparisons. We saw a little bit of that last quarter, and I think that's going to continue into this next quarter. Meanwhile, we have this reopening that's really been stalled and delayed. but I still think it's going to happen. Um, and I think many of those reopening companies are absolutely going to begin to benefit. Um, so we still feel very strongly that you should have some exposure to many of those reopening plays, including things like booking holdings that we own. Um, so I think, you know, temper expectations for tech, but don't sell it. Um, I think it's important to have a diversified portfolio. But keep in mind that we may see some better performance from some of those other groups that haven't um, that are a little more economically sensitive. Like Joe, um, the financials. Right. What you're having a nice day today is rates move higher. Kramer says, quote, I do think the financials are the group to be bought other than the oils. You already have pretty good exposure within the traditional banks, Bank of America, Goldman and Morgan Stanley, among them also American Express and Blackstone. But you have a new buy 
Uh, and that's SoFi. So you must agree yeah. um, that you want you want more financials exposure here. Yeah, without question, over the last six weeks, I think I've been on the show talking every appearance about adding to financial exposure for the exact reason that the possibility would exist that yields are going to rise until the end of the year. The yields are going to rise. Growth is going to be challenged. That should be your expectation. I agree with you, Scott. You don't get out of growth names, but expect that growth is going to have muted performance relative to the reopening trades and financials are part of that. I love financials overall as a sector. I believe that they offer something very compelling that energy and materials might not offer. And that's really the domestic exposure and the strength of a balance sheet. And I really uh, suspect that with a consumer and corporate behavior that's only going to accelerate in a reopening environment, that's going to benefit financials. So SoFi is a name that I added recently. Look, we all know the fundamental story surrounding this company. Phenomenal CEO and Anthony Noto, friend of the network, Liz Young. We understand the relationship there. My buy here is predicated on the study of momentum. You know that's what I do. And what I could tell you is that you're witnessing range and volume expansion in the last 10 days that indicates to me that there's further upside potential that could carry the stock above $20 in the near term. Well, what I find interesting, Shannon, is I had you know, asked the producers to ask the committee members, what sectors do you think are going to do best in Q4? And what specific stocks do you think are going to do best among that? You don't have financials as your top three sectors. You have industrials, tech, and healthcare. John Najarian today doesn't have tech. I mean, excuse me, doesn't have financials among the best. He has energy and tech. Uh, why are financials getting more love, Shannon? Are they, are, aren't they having a breakout or no? Well, I think it depends on what part of the financial sector you're looking at. And well, I any, do you didn't think pick that any. there is. Uh, I don't know. A, you didn't say a, money centers attended- versus private equity or, or fintech versus <laughs> this, that, or the other. You don't have any. Neither does John. I- oh, well, I do oh, have financial. I'm, not talking, about, I, I, I'm th- not talking about what you I mean, own now. Uh, forgive me. I'm not trying to suggest you don't but own as, it. Well, as I don't my say breakout. No, I get it. When yeah. I say what's going to do best in the Q4, neither one of you pick financials. I don't think this is going to persist. I, I think that this yields curve move, I don't think we're going to get the veracity of the move that we experienced in the first quarter. I think that there is going to be a desire as we go into the end of the fourth quarter to position in names that are potentially more. I mean, we were talking about 2000 and at the end of 2019, financials was supposed to be the breakout. They were supposed to lead the value rotation. We've been waiting for this. I just don't think it's sustainable. I think that these companies are disconnected from the benefit of yields curve, you know, the spread. And I, you know, for me, that's not where I think it's going to do best. I mean, we're equal weight. I mean, they'll, they'll be fine, but I don't think that they're going to lead the charge in the fourth quarter. Now, John, I mean, look, I, again, I, I, I didn't mean to, you know, suggest that you don't have any exposure in financials. You obviously do. You own Bank of America um, shares. You own, I mean, sorry, you own JP yep. Morgan shares, Bank of America calls, mm-hmm. Capital One calls, mm-hmm. Key Corp calls, SoFi calls, Square calls, Visa calls, Wells, Far- Wells Fargo calls. And you do think rates are moving higher. You told the producers, but yet you don't think financials are going to be one of the best performing groups in the next three months? I think they've already done it, Scott. I mean, you look at J.P. Morgan, for instance. Um, J.P. Morgan is up 150 percent over the, the S&P 500, you know, a 31 percent versus 20 percent or something like that. 
Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, over this period that uh, Prashant gave us to look at from now till the end of the year, I said, okay, I think J.P. Morgan will get beat by the likes of these energy companies because demand is just up there like crazy. Production has not kept up. Um, and that's not just production and, uh, you know, the ex exploration companies, Scott, that's midstream, um, that's, uh, you know, the natural gas boil, B-O-I-L, which is an ETF that tracks natural gas. It's a double, you know, it's a, uh, a leveraged ETF for the upside of nat gas, was up 8% early in the morning. I mean, these are uh, a sector, energy overall, that are going to outperform what banks can do after the banks have already done what they've done. Yes, rates are going to go up. I think we top out 175, 180. I don't think we get over two by year end, Scott. But I think banks will just do fine in that environment. And as you just described, I'm overweight in that sector, pretty heavy. And you throw Square and some of these others in there. Sure. And I'm really strong in the banking space. But I think energy is going to outperform. And I think after rates top out here, people go right back into tech. And then I think tech zooms to the upside as well. Joe, give me something quick. Well, you see, I, I actually think energy has already made its move. I think energy, you want to look for your opportunities in the debt market, high yield specifically. I think financials, yes, rates moving up, that's a bonus. But think to yourself, whether it's all these non-traditional assets, NFTs, cryptocurrencies, right? There's so much liquidity out there right now, Scott, and it's all about the management, pricing, trading of assets. That's why Goldman, that's why Morgan Stanley is doing so well. The balance sheets of these institutions, financial, financials have totally recreated themselves in the wake of the great financial crisis. They're buying back their stock. They're going to experience loan growth, both commercial and residential. If we're going to see this reopening trade, there's so many different tailwinds beyond rates rising that could benefit financials. And I think it's the cleanest and most qualitative way to play the value-oriented uh, strategy if it really is to take hold here through the next three to six months. Well, it's interesting. We, we have a, a good debate to be had on energy in and of itself. As Goldman Sachs raises its Brent target to $90 a barrel, I'm assuming that's Jeff Curry, who was bullish on commodities mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Um, Anastasia. But re but re yeah. Go ahead, Joe, real quick. Yeah, remember, oil could go to 90 and energy equities don't perform concurrent with that. We, we went through that same experience several months ago, and that led to a significant unwind of energy equities. So be, be very careful extrapolating that because the price of oil is $90, you're going to get that same performance in energy equities. History will tell you that's not the case. Well, maybe that's why Shannon says her least favorite sector for Q4 is energy. Though, Anastasia, I want you to make the case why you say being long energy stocks makes fundamental sense right now. So we have Look, difference I of opinions, clearly. It is a bit of a difference of opinion. And I do agree with Joe that just because oil is doing well doesn't mean that energy stocks are going to do automatically well. But here's what I like it. First of all, the cleanest story that I think we have in the world right now is this, that we've managed through the third wave of the Delta variant. The caseloads are declining. 
drastically around the world. And at the same time, the vaccination rates are picking up significantly. If we were talking in July of this year, it would have been 28 percent global vaccination rate. Today, it is 45 percent and is going higher. So what does that mean? That means the mobility is going to pick up as it's doing around the world. So to John's point, this is significantly strengthening demand and supply just cannot keep up with it. So the biggest fundamental difference to me for the energy stocks, the reason that why sometimes they didn't respond to the high oil price because it was high in the front end. It was high in a front month. And then you you looked at the strip and it was not actually trading at 60 or 70. Maybe it was trading at 50. That has changed today. If you look at the next 12 months forward strip, it is firmly above 70 and probably even further out. So this means that energy companies have some visibility of cash flows that they can rely on. You've got free cash flow that is much, much improved for these companies. They're returning that in terms of dividends to shareholders. If you look at something like XLE, 4% dividend yield. If you look at the share buybacks, they're also back for the energy stocks. So what I like about it, Scott, fundamentally, energy today is everything that it wasn't Mm -hmm, in 2015. mm -hmm. And by the way, if you're an ESG investor, more and more oil and gas companies are starting to take that into account as well. So I think it's one of the sweet spots. It has rallied a lot. Okay. But if we do have a pullback on it, I would be a buyer. We will leave it there. Anastasia, good to see you as always. We'll see you again soon. Up next, more fourth quarter picks from our investment committee. Plus, Joe unloads a red hot tech stock. It's up more than 85%. You might own it as well. We'll talk about that next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion. Helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. A federal judge says that the man who tried to assassinate President Ronald Reagan can be freed from all remaining court-ordered restrictions because he's no longer a threat to anyone. John Hinckley Jr. has been living in Williamsburg, Virginia, since being released from a hospital in 2016. On the Greek island of Crete, a magnitude 5.8 earthquake killing one person, injuring 20 homes, businesses and churches were also damaged. No one from Afghanistan will address the United Nations General Assembly. Taliban officials and the ambassador from the former Afghanistan government wanted to represent their country, but UN officials now say that no one will speak on behalf of Afghanistan. 
and House Democrats will be meeting later today to discuss strategy on passing the one trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill. The vote had been set for today. And on the news tonight, a look at some of the crucial votes in Congress, funding the government, raising the debt limit. Full analysis tonight at 7 Eastern. You're now up to date, Scott. I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you so much. Rahel Solomon, we'll see you soon. All right, Joe, I referenced this before the break. Uh, CrowdStrike, you sold it. Right. I, I did. And first, let me qualify this with saying it is, it is possible to sell a stock that you think is a very strong fundamental company. And that's the case with CrowdStrike. So I know Josh Brown and Jim Cramer, they're both going to get mad at me about this. But this was a trade. Back on June 7th, I bought CrowdStrike down at 214 and a quarter. I specifically bought it because at the time, long duration assets were correcting significantly. I took advantage of that. Okay. Now I'm beginning to suspect that longer duration assets are going to roll over the other way. And that's exactly what CrowdStrike is. So I'm ringing the register. I still believe in cybersecurity. Fortinet is one of my largest holdings, and I'm maintaining that position. I love, the big, I love the big disclaimer about it. Trade. I mean, I, I, I love the disclaimer. Like, you know you're going to catch some heat for selling a, a much-loved stock like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. But within, within the portfolio, I am managing my holdings based upon a lot of the conditions and reasonings that get me into a trade, those should be the same that get you out of a trade. And I got into CrowdStrike for the reasoning of long-duration assets correcting significantly. Now I suspect we're going the other way with that, and I get out of CrowdStrike. Okay. Um, I also um, wanted you to give some picks. I remember I said, you know, going into Q4, what are your favorite sectors? What are your least favorite sectors? And what are your best stocks? Joe, you gave American Express and Lulu. You want to say why? Well, financials, consumer discretionary, uh, these are sectors and, and healthcare as well. But financials, we carry it as significant overweight in the quality momentum index and the ETF that tracks it. I believe in financials, as I said before. And American Express, Scott, that's about the reopening. That's about the return of corporate travel. That's about the consumer, the affluent consumer going out and spending. Lululemon, I mean, this is just a company that is performing on all of your expectations fundamentally. And it really is delivering not only in brand recognition, but just with a diversification of product that really is unrivaled. Um, I, I find myself obviously wearing the ABC pants, but also going out and buying other things from Lululemon. It really has created itself into a brand franchise that is rivaling, if not excelling relative to Nike. Brenda, you know, in, in the context of where you think investors want to be in the months ahead, at least the fourth quarter, Disney, Boeing, CVS, your best three stocks for folks. Why? Yes. Well, I think Disney, as we know, hasn't done a whole lot this year, although over the one year it's been still been tremendous stock. But I think things are really setting up well for this company, particularly if children become vaccinated here. Um, I think that's going to be a game changer for a lot of families that were planning parks visits and other things, even though, you know, despite the Delta variant, uh, traffic to parks has been pretty good. Um, so I still think we have that going for the company. And then on top of that, um, you know, when we look to the future, the company may shorten the window of time uh, that films are available um, for theaters in order to really continue to capitalize on that Disney Plus audience. So I think there are some great growth drivers here for the company in the reopening, but over the long term as well. Shannon, Union Pacific, PayPal, AbbVie, your three best. 
Still looking for disruption, Scott. Whether we're talking about growth versus value, and I look at a company like UNP absolutely going to benefit from this manufacturing rebound, which I do think will be sustained for several years, even with a smaller or larger infrastructure package. Um, they utilize technology to do a great job executing. And PayPal, we're talking about it. You know, finan- whether it's financials or technology, you know, it's land and expand for PayPal. They have an engaged user base, and there's a lot of opportunity for them to continue to grow. Dr. J, uh, right back to where we started the, you know, our, the conversation, um, Devon Energy, mm-hmm. Chimerex, and Marathon Oil, right? Yep. The reasons, Scott, are just as Amorosa said or as I said, um, I think demand, whether it's midstream, whether it's net gas, um, whether it's production and sales, uh, I think this is an area that you can get true alpha going into uh, the end of the year because demand is sky high and those reopening plays, a lot of them that we discussed, airlines and cruise ships, they use a lot of this as well. A lot of the movement of those, uh, once those ships get unloaded and they get put on trains and then out through distribution centers, Scott, that's all energy related. And I think these plays really will work into the end of 2021. All right, get ready, Doc. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. You've got unusual activity, as always. Do not miss those trades coming straight ahead on the half. New EPA regulations would make EV a near necessity for U.S. automakers, according to Credit Suisse. The transportation sector is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions, and proposed standards would cut CO2 emission targets by 25 percent by 2026 from 2020 levels. Legacy car companies like GM and Ford are increasing their investments in EV and could stand to gain in a greener future. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. The tax wars have come to ETFs. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden has proposed a new tax on ETFs to help pay for the $3.5 trillion budget plan. The measure would stop investors from avoiding capital gains on so-called in-kind transaction. This allows traders to swap the underlying assets for another without producing capital gains. It's one of the primary tax advantages of ETFs. The ETF industry is fighting back, though. Let's talk with Eric Pan. He's the CEO of the Investment Company Institute, which represents mutual funds and ETFs. Tom Lai, my old friend from ETF Trends. Eric, briefly, what is an in-kind transaction? Why do the Democrats want to tax it? And why is this a threat to the ETF industry? So in-kind transactions are how ETFs manage their portfolios to ensure their prices follow the market. Senator Ron Wyden wants to tax these adjustments and basically to raise money. But it's bad policy because it's going to punish investors. People who are trying to invest for the long term are going to see tax bills every year. They're going to see more taxes. And this is going to discourage them from doing long-term investing. 
this is exactly the wrong type of policy that we need right now. We should be encouraging people to buy and hold, save for the long term, save for their retirement, save for their education. Um, it's also going to affect middle income Americans. Uh, $125,000 is the median income of 12 million American families that own ETFs. And 92% of them have incomes below $400,000, which is Joe Biden's line for not raising taxes. So this is just bad policy. You know, Tom, this isn't the only tax proposal that affects the financial business. Biden also wants to boost the capital gains rate, which is now top rate of 20 percent. How would that proposal affect ETFs? Well, one one key thing, uh, high tax rate is going to go 37 to 39.6. But also, if you're making more than a million dollars, they're talking about boosting the cap gains rate up to 39.6 as well. I think the key point that Eric's pointing out is for the average ETF investor, and Biden was really clear. He said, if you make under $400,000 a year, don't worry, I'm not going to tax you. 92% of households that own ETFs make under $400,000 a year. And in fact, the median household that owns ETFs makes $125,000 a year. So that's not really fair. I think if we were thinking about people like uh, Jack Bogle, he'd be rolling in his grave now because Eric's right. When you think about our, our kids who are saving for the future, who are going to live longer and they can't really count on Social Security, Bob, this is going to be a big blow if it goes through. Yeah, it's certainly one of the big advantages in the last 10 or 15 years is the great move up and the explosion in ETFs. This certainly would put a dent in that. We're going to talk a lot more about this, much more on the upcoming budget battle, how it's affecting the investment industry on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We'll also be joined by Ed Rosenberg. He's the senior vice president, the head of ETFs at American Century Funds. He'll talk about alternative forms of investing around inflation as well. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime, back right after this. Let's do it, Doc. What do you have for Unusual today? Scott, I know you're a huge fan of horse racing, so I picked a stock that's named after a horse, Affirm. Affirmed Holdings, of course, is a buy now, pay later company. And when Peloton sort of uh, uh, had its problems, this really hit them. But then, of course, Amazon famously put them on the platform and the stock was off to the races. And the pun is intended. Take a look now, Scott, at the weekly October 1st, 130 calls. Stock was 129. They're buying those 130 calls in big numbers. Uh, and this is a perfect example of the right way, I think, to play it because the stock's had a tremendous run, still $16 under the high of the year, but buying a call for $3 instead of spending $129, great way to play it. Second one, Scott, um, is DT. DT uh, is artificial intelligence. The stock has doubled this year. They're buying the November 75 calls with the stock at 72.50. I bought the 72 calls. All right, good stuff. Appreciate that, Doc. Thank you. CNBC's Delivering Alpha is back this Wednesday, September 29th, bringing together some of the biggest names in investing from SPACs to crypto to ESG. It is all about maximizing returns in this new era of opportunity. You can register now, DeliveringAlpha.com. We're back on the half right after this.
Hedge funds have been underperforming private equity, so they changed their motto to if you can't beat them, join them. Leslie Picker following the money tells us more. Hey, Les. Hey, Scott. Convergence is the industry lingo here. The merging of hedge funds with venture capital style of investing. Hedge funds such as Tiger Global, D1, KOTU, Dragoneer, and Altimeter have invested more than $150 billion into startups this year, already surpassing last year's record. It's marked a huge shift in the venture capital landscape, which all of a sudden is seeing a rush of capital from a different type of investor, one which is willing to do deals faster, often at higher valuations and with less intervention. They're not interested in board seats, for example. So, of course, startups really like that. But why are hedge funds all of a sudden attracted to this market in the first place? They're chasing returns. You can see here private market strategies generating annualized returns last year around 14%, twice the performance of hedge funds. That wasn't the case a decade ago when performance was nearly identical. Past performance, though, is not indicative of future returns. And given hedge fund managers' quick check writing, some are wondering whether these deals have enough diligence and discipline in terms of valuation. Now, we will be discussing that theme, those questions, many more at Delivering Alpha on Wednesday of this week. It is not too late to register at DeliveringAlpha.com. Scott. Are fees impacted at all, Leslie, by, by these new strategies? I mean, if anything, over the last few years, fees have been coming down. Interesting. There was a, a recent Goldman Sachs report that showed that fees for hedge fund managers that also dabble in these private strategies, and I thought this was pretty surprising, are actually lower than that of traditional hedge fund managers, despite what it means for the potential for performance, as we just showed you. Uh, interestingly, 1.47% was the average management fee for these types of vehicles versus 1.5% for hedge funds and more of a 2 in 20 model for private equity. So uh, the idea here is that they kind of, because they're entering into new territory, it's a way to coax LPs to come along for the ride. They're locking up capital for a little bit longer, letting them invest in these new markets at hopefully higher returns. If it pays off, I would guess you can expect them to increase those fees over time. Of course. I mean, the the great investors, the ones with great track records and and some of the biggest names are still commanding high fees um, for a reason, because they continue to deliver a lot of alpha. Good to see you. Thanks, Les. Speaking of, I'll be speaking to two top investors at this year's Delivering Alpha Conference. The Alpha Maverick himself, Shamath Palihapitiya, he's the founder and CEO of Social Capital, and Brad Gerstner, the chairman and CEO, as Leslie was just talking about, of Altimeter Capital. All takes place on Wednesday. Final trades are next. All right, let's do final trades. Joey, you're up first. EQT, it's a name I purchased recently. I like natural gas names better than oil. Credit John and Pete here. They had unusual activity in this. Consider natural gas stocks, Scott. They have heavy short interest. This one has 6% short interest. We're going to be joined, by the way, by Mark Fisher on Wednesday, Joe. I think you're on that day. Um, He's going to have a lot to say about what's happening in the energy space right now. Looking forward to that. Uh, John Najarian. I'm going to throw it right back at Joe, Scott. Uh, (laughs) SoFi. Joe, you'll, you'll love this. SoFi calls, the weekly calls, 18 calls. Boom, 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 bought. I'm in those. All right. Uh, sharing some ideas like that. Uh, Brenda. Uh, CBS should benefit fourth quarter traffic from boosters and a more normalized golden flu season. All right. And Shannon. 
Cognex, CGNX. They make vision systems in manufacturing for a number of end markets. All right. It is good to see everybody. Keep your eye on that 10-year, just below 150. That does it for us. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.